0: Because I know how uh, a little story kind of through where we have been in these last kind of four and a half chapters. This is kind of the synopsis of the Bible so far, I guess. Uh, God has a chosen people. And I briefly talked about that in the one song that we sang. Uh, God appeared to Abraham. And he, he promises that, that, Abraham, there's a couple things. First, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to numerically bless you so that you become a huge people. But the purpose of that blessing, and he goes on to say, is that so that through you and through your descendants, that all, all nations of the earth would find blessing. And so God uses this one family uh, in the beginning of the scriptures all the way through to ultimately the culmination of, of Jesus coming uh, to the world, to bless all people through his sacrifice on the cross. We'll talk more about this as we go. Um, but as Genesis kind of starts to to wind down, is is one of those descendants is Joseph. And, and Joseph has a, a bunch of brothers, and the brothers are really upset because uh, their father favors Joseph. He's He's more important for a variety of reasons that we've already talked about in the past, so I don't want to get into that. But the point is that the brothers get angry enough that they make a plan to kill him, and, and, and one of the brothers kind of comes to his senses and goes, we can't do that, so, so let's just sell him off uh, to this, this group of people passing by, and, and he can go and be a slave in their nation, and at least his blood won't be on our hands, as if somehow that's any better. And Joseph goes, um, and through a crazy series of events, um, he starts kind of as, as the lowest of the low, and, and God uses him in mighty ways through dreams and different things. And so he becomes uh, ultimately second in command to Pharaoh. God uses him in so many mighty ways that the Pharaoh elevates him and elevates him up. And then Genesis kind of ends um, with, with the people having, the sorry, the Israelite people having moved to uh, the land of Egypt with Joseph because of a uh, famine that uh, existed in the land. And, and at first, the people, the Israelite people, uh, also called the Hebrews in our text this morning, and the, is- and the Egyptians began to kind of live together. And, and at first, it sounded like it was very much in harmony, but God continues to bless the population of Israel, so much so that, that the Pharaoh in the future, this is a few hundred years in the future now, The Pharaoh fears that, man, these people are are getting too numerous. And what happens if they decide they're going to turn against us and and join our enemies? We've got to do something. And so the Pharaoh enslaves the Hebrew people, and God's people have gone from being promised that they'll enter a land um, of blessing, and and now they're in the land of of cursing. And so we move on in Exodus, and we see that God is going to use this one little This one little baby named Moses. He's a Hebrew by birth, but he's rescued from imminent death. The Pharaoh had commanded that all baby boys, due to this population growing, that all baby boys would be thrown into the Nile and drowned. But Moses' mother is unwilling to allow that to happen, and so she kind of rescues him. And, and puts him in this basket. And Pharaoh's daughter comes along and, and hears the crying of the baby in the basket. And, and she of all people knows what the command is. That when I find this baby that he should be killed. But God puts compassion on her heart. And she rescues Moses. And though Moses is born a Hebrew, he grows up an Egyptian in kind of Pharaoh's household. But then, and we talked about this a lot. And this is central to kind of the rest of, really the rest of Scripture. Is Moses grows up an Egyptian, but knows that he's not an Egyptian, and so he's walking out one day and he sees um, some Hebrew people kind of doing some work and they're and they're being abused. It's it's slavery is now getting very aggressive and and they're being abused. And so Moses steps in to kind of rescue his his you know his brotherhood, and he kills the Egyptian and and what he expects to happen is to kind of be welcomed in as like man, thank you for saving us and. And rather what happens is he's rejected by his own people and, and somehow news of this ro- uh, goes to Pharaoh and now Pharaoh recognizes that, that Moses is no longer loyal to Egypt and so he seeks to kill Moses and so Moses races out of Egypt, been rejected by his own people, been rejected by the people who have brought him up and now he's kind of a nomad in, in this place called Midian. It's his third people group in his lifetime, and he really struggles with this issue of where do I belong? Where do I fit? Who are my people? And I think many of us, especially kind of our our younger generation, is struggling with that sense of identity. And so what God does is he appears to Moses in this burning bush, and he reminds him, you are a Hebrew. You are the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God says that he's been working sovereignly this whole time and that he's going to use Moses to rescue his people uh, from slavery. But it's not going to be Moses that does it. Rather, it's going to be God that does it through Moses. And so last week, we looked at the five different objections that Moses has, you know, excuses of, of, well, I shouldn't be the one because. We talked about how often we kind of do that. God calls us to something, and we go, well, I don't have skills in that area, or or, I'm not gifted enough, or I I, I don't know what I would even do. And God goes, that's kind of the point, is I'm going to be at work through you. I'm the one that's going to bring you to this place and help you and equip you to do the things that you have been called to. You see, when God calls us to a mission, he then equips us for that mission. And that might be in supernatural ways. That might be through other people. And and in this instance, we see that Moses continues to object and God says, Okay, you know what? I'm, I'm going to send your brother Aaron and he's going to help you with this. You're not going to be alone in this journey. And that's kind of where we've ended. So we're going to read uh, chapter four, verse eighteen, to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to read chapter five as well. Um, and, and I just, just so you know, chapter five is going to go quick, but we're going to spend some time in chapter four because there's a few implications in there. But there's also these verses in chapter, or verses twenty four, twenty five, and twenty six that kind of come out of nowhere and are very confusing. And we're going to spend time there. So when you all of a sudden get there and you're like, "What is going on here?" Don't worry, we will We will spend time there. So here's what it says. Um, so Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and all that he, sorry, and had let's try that again, his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I will put in your power. We looked at those last week. And here's here's where we're going to spend a lot of time. God says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And Sorry, struggling this morning. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you were a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of all people, and the people believed, and and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and more, moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens." Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let a heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your own go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants this way? No straw is given to your servants, yet They say to us, make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. This is what you say. Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. There's so much in there that we need to spend some time on. But there's two parts of this that we're going to really focus on in the sense of how it affects uh, our own lives. One of those things is where it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. When God says that, does that contradict the very message that he's given Moses to go and send? And so we're going to explore that and we're going to explore what does that mean when when our plans don't seem to work the way that they should or even things that we know are good and true, God seems to cause problems or hurts or pains in the midst of that. And then secondly, how are we going to live when things don't go the way that we expect? So those are the two main things that we're going to look for ourselves. But there's a few things that I want to point out as we get there. So in the beginning here, Moses goes back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and he says, let me go. What he's really seeking is he's seeking a blessing. After all, he has married uh, Jethro's daughter, and he's saying, I'm going to take your daughter, and I'm going to take your, your grandsons, and we're going to go back to the land of Egypt, where Jethro knows full well that everyone is trying to kill Moses. So he acknowledges that what God's calling me to do here, this is not going to be easy. And so he seeks a blessing. He seeks Jethro to say, yes, you, you, you can go. Not in the sense of allowing it, but in the sense of a blessing. And so it says that Moses took his wife and his sons and he went on this journey. And then there's this little verse. And I'm highlighting these things because they become more and more and more important as it goes on. And I'm just getting us to look and remind ourselves of these patterns. Moses took what with him at the end of verse 20? The staff of God in his hand. So remember, the staff has become this, uh, or has started, I should say, to become this symbol of God's power and how he's going to work in the midst of the Egyptians. And this is the first time here the staff is referred to as the staff of God. And, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, why that matters. But just note that. And then God says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, do the miracles that I have put in your power an interesting sentence there. Remember, there's the three miracles that God said, okay, Moses, you're going you're gonna to do these three things because Moses' one objection was, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to follow me. And so God says, you know what? They are going to follow you because I'm going to prove to them that I'm with you. And here's the ways in which I'm going to do that. And so he reminds them, these miracles that I put in your power to do, go and do this. But I will harden your heart. Sorry, I will harden Pharaoh's heart is what he says. That seems very strange. Moses, go and rescue the people from slavery. But as you go and do that, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let them go. You could you could kind of throw Moses a bone here and understand why he would be like, what are you doing? How are you going to You say you're going to do this, but you also say you're going to do this, and those things seem like opposites to us. So how are we going to deal with that? Are you going to rescue your people, or are you not going to rescue your people? In a sense, when we read verses like this, it almost even seems that God is being cruel. But the only way that we get there is if we assume that God's sole purpose and sole plan is to rescue the people out of slavery as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And God's never promised that. In fact, God has said a few other things through the journey of how he's going to exalt his name and remember the promise back to Abraham so that who might be blessed? All nations, through you. And so God's about to go on a journey here that... that. From a reader's perspective, it feels like, man, you could do this a lot more efficiently. But what God's trying to do is it's not this micro view of only saving people from slavery. It's stepping back and showing the whole world God's power, his glory, his goodness to his nation so that all nations would be able to see that and go, this God, he is the one true God. Remember, all nations at this point in this area are all polytheistic, worshiping many gods. And God's on this journey to show all nations, not just some, but all nations, that he is the one true God. Douglas Stewart, a commentator, sums it up this way. This is really good. He says, the reader might think that God was announcing to Moses that he was going to frustrate Moses' efforts, but in fact, it's the opposite. By indicating that he would control Pharaoh's resistance to the exodus, God is assuring Moses that he is totally in control of Pharaoh in every way. He's able to make him resist as long as necessary, even during a buildup of increasingly painful plagues, and then make them give in in the last moment, which is the moment of God's choosing, not the moment of Pharaoh's choosing. Now, that can be a tough pill to swallow. That can be really challenging to grasp. But either God is sovereign over everything or God isn't. And the Bible seems to, doesn't seem to. It says very clearly, God is at work from day one until the final close of the end of the earth. He's at work. In Job 42, Job has kind of arguments with God about why would you allow this to happen? This doesn't make any sense. And, and when God kind of reveals himself to Job and he doesn't really give him answers other than explain his, his bigger picture view of all of this, eventually Job repents and he says something where he says, I know that no one can thwart your plans. Not even Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And God's going to harden his heart because he's going to take the whole nation of Egypt, which is the greatest superpower that exists on the earth at this point, and God's going to say, look, I am far greater than any of the gods of Egypt. Now remember, polytheistic. So, and we're going to see this in a moment when when Moses and Aaron do go to Pharaoh and say, the Lord has told us to say, you know, let our people go. And he's like, who's the Lord? Like, that's one God. I serve like a hundred of them. They all have specialized areas that we worship them in. So who is your one God? Well, God's going to show them and everyone that his purposes are not only to liberate his people from Egypt, but that is certainly a big part of it, but that it's greater than that. In fact, when you get to the book of Joshua after kind of the whole story of, of what happens to the people as they kind of go on the Exodus and God gives them law and all these things, is you see that the name of God has spread so far that when Joshua and the people go to Jericho, there's this one woman named, anybody? Rahab, who says, I've heard the fame of this God. And the people tremble before his power. And so she says to the spies that have come in, please save me, I want to, I I recognize that that every God that we have worshipped, that is useless, I want to worship the one true Lord. And she is rescued and saved. And and not only is she just rescued and saved, but what you read later on in Matthew is that her name pops up in the lineage of Jesus. See, right from the beginning, when God promises Abraham, it's through your nation that all nations are going to be blessed, is we see that all nations are being shown the power and the goodness and and the authority of God, not just so that he can show how big his ego is, because that's not the point. It's to show all nations that look It's only in me that you're going to find any kind of meaning, purpose, and hope. I am the only God who can save. That's what he's saying through this. And so we, the reader, kind of have to zoom out kind of from a micro view to a a bigger picture, a macro view, and see that God isn't just doing one thing, that God's doing all kinds of things in the midst of this. Well, this is where it gets real in our life too, isn't it? When God doesn't act the way that we think he should, or even the way that we expect he would, are we so focused on our own struggles and our own pain that we can't step back and see, God, what are you doing in the midst of all this? How are you at work, not just in my life, but in the life of all of those around me? We're going to talk more about that in a moment. In verse 23, you see then this imagery of the, or 22 and 23, the imagery of the firstborn son. And of course, if you've read ahead, you kind of know the story is this firstborn imagery will become significant. And actually this firstborn imagery goes all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, into the life of Jesus. And, and we'll talk about that further in the coming weeks. But as I said, I want to highlight here 24, 25, and 26 because um, this is one of the things. When, when we teach through books of the Bible, we can't ignore hard stuff. Whereas if we don't teach through books of the Bible, we can just ignore hard stuff and pretend like it's not there. But that's not very helpful. Because what happens when we get to this and we go, man, this, doesn't, this story doesn't make any sense. What's, what's happening? Well, let's, let's dig in because this is tough. What we have to remember is the Bible isn't written for us so that we would have every single detail of every single thing that happened so that we can be very, you know, okay, now now, God, I trust you. As God gives us what we need to know so that we would understand his plan of salvation uh, ultimately through Jesus, but through the Hebrew people right now, and, and he's going to rescue them. And so uh, as we kind of recognize that there are details that are maybe missing that we wish we had, doesn't mean that God um, was mistaken to not give them to us. So what we see in here, and man, I I jumped down the rabbit hole real far on this topic. Um, I was really curious. Shayla and I were out walking in the forest uh, the other day, and and she was kind of like, this is a few weeks back, and she's like, what are you going to do when we get to this? And I was like... We're not there yet. So, so I had to jump in and, and dig in. And, and it's, it's really quite challenging because commentators aren't united in all of the details of this. But they are united, generally speaking, on the main theme of what is happening here. There's, there's some ambiguity here in, in the Hebrew, right, in the original language that it's written in. Whether God's talking about Moses or whether God's talking about Gershom or even, and I think this is probably most likely, is both of them. And so when we all of a sudden get to at a lodging place, the Lord met and sought to kill him. That seems a little out of left field. Like God just said, you're going to go and you're going to rescue people from slavery. So how is this going to happen? Well, the principle is very clear for us in the last word of verse 26. The principle is that of circumcision. And so if you remember back to Abraham, back to kind of chapter 17 of Genesis, is that God said to Abraham, here's going to be a physical mark on you and your people for my name so that you might be different than the nations around you. And so this was a covenant that God gave Abraham that was a promise that was meant to seal his people In a very practical, tangible way. And so this was something that was practiced circumcision through all of these people. Now remember, Moses was born a Hebrew, but was raised an Egyptian. And so scholars are kind of divided on, was Moses circumcised in those first few days? Wasn't he? The Egyptians practiced partial circumcision. So so maybe it was that he was partially circumcised, but he hadn't fully obeyed what God was telling him. The point is this, remember, is he's struggling with his identity. God's trying to say, you are a Hebrew. You are part of this people. And so the details aren't there, but it's clearly about circumcision. So the, the implication is either Moses or Gershom or possibly both have not yet been circumcised. And so they've, re, Moses has reluctantly accepted his calling from God right? He's made all kinds of objections, but God has kind of pushed those away, and he's reluctantly accepted this calling, and he's gone out, but God is very clearly upset that he is not obeying in everything. Because what's clear, whether it's Moses, or whether it's Gershom that isn't circumcised, or potentially both, is Moses has not followed what God has called him to do. But even in the midst of God's anger, and you remember back when Moses was giving God all these objections, the first four go without any anger or frustration from God. He just kind of gives him a response. But in the fifth one, his anger burns against Moses. But even in that anger, he gives mercy and grace and says, okay, I'm going to send Aaron to do this with you. Well, here in the same way is while Moses has not been faithful in some way, whether for him, his son, or both of them, is Zipporah. This has come clear to Moses' wife that this is what needs to happen, that circumcision needs to be done. And so she steps in the gap and she does what is right. And God relents and says, okay, Zipporah, you've done what's right. And there's a whole, this idea of a bridegroom of blood and the translation of that, There's that's a whole nother rabbit trail to go down, and, and it's certainly interesting, and you are welcome to grab some commentaries and, and dig deep. It's It's well worth the journey. But I don't want us to get sidetracked on, man, some of these details are missing, and I really am curious about who it is, when the point is simply that either... Abraham, sorry, Either Moses or his son weren't circumcised or potentially both, and Zipporah stepped in to make right what Moses was not yet fulfilling and doing correctly. And so here's the thing. God has called each of us to purpose, and he's called us to obedience. And sometimes when we don't live in that obedience, God mercifully brings other people to us to make right the things that we have not yet been fully faithful in. That is the biggest grace that we could ever be afforded. Moses didn't deserve that grace, but God is at work. And so while it seems like, man, these, these details is very strange, the narrator only wants to give us so much, and, and, and the mo- majority of scholars think that Moses is, by, by and large, the narrator of this. And so you could get into the, well, maybe he didn't want to say some bad things about himself, and all of those arguments, but I think that misses the point is that circumcision was a sign to God's people that you are part of this covenant family, and Moses, you're not being obedient. And Zipporah says, I'm going to step in and do it. Now remember, this theme of faithful women who have stepped in when the men haven't, this has all been through Exodus already, hasn't it? It's about the fourth time that we've seen this. And so we just see God's mercy and grace there. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on here. I just want to get into one real quick, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm writing a paper for seminary that that this one verse has really intrigued me. Um, If you want to talk about a biblical theology of environmentalism, feel free to come and talk to me. Not that I have kind of the last word on this by any means, but there's a really interesting verse in here that points back to the Garden of Eden, but we don't have time to deal with that. So if you want to have a conversation later, I would love to do that. Uh, So, it says, the Lord said to Aaron, so now it goes back in time a little bit, right? Moses was at the mountain, Midian's over here, Egypt's over here, this is where Aaron is. Moses was at the mountain, went back to Jethro to say, hey, please let me go and, and accomplish this purpose that God has given for me, and Jethro says, yes, go in peace, and now Aaron's already on the journey, and they meet back at the mountain. So again, the reminder here that this is not some concession that God made going, okay, if you're not going to be obedient, I'll do this so that you're obedient, is God already had planned that Aaron was going to come and help Moses. He just hadn't yet revealed that to him. And so when he makes excuse after excuse, God says, you know what, fine. Actually, the text says Aaron's on his way in the Hebrew. And so Aaron meets with Moses, and, and you see the embrace here. They kiss each other and and then it says Moses told Aaron all the words uh, of the Lord which he spoke to him and you gotta you gotta kind of be thinking this is gonna be crazy but he shows the signs uh, that God commanded him to do and clearly Aaron gets on board with this because after all we don't know exactly the details here but Aaron revealed himself to God and made it so that Aaron went and went to the mountain to go find Moses and then so Aaron speaks. Uh, all these words that Moses told him to the elders of the people. And remember last week when Air, when Air, sorry, when sorry Moses argued, the people are not going to listen to me. What does God say? They are going to listen to you. And I'm going to show you these miracles so that they listen to them. And what does it say here? The people listened when they saw the sights. And then here's the key verse. And this hit me hard this week. The people believed when they heard that the Lord, sorry, and, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Have they been freed from slavery yet? So, what God is, show, or what we're learning here through their response to God, is that they recognize that God heard. Our cries, and He knows that we're suffering, and He's brought Aaron and Moses to help us in this. And their response is not when we get liberated from slavery we will worship; it's the fact that we've heard, that God heard us, and so they bow and worship. And I thought to myself, how many times do I only bow and worship when God actually shows up and does something crazy? When He changes my circumstances, and then I go, "Wow, God, You are." powerful and you are at work. Or when I bow on my knees and I cry out to God because something in my life is causing me hurt or angst or confusion or uncertainty, when I pray and I cry out to God, do I worship him knowing that he has heard and he is going to intervene in his timing with his purposes? That verse really, really hit me. Okay, let's move quickly now. There's no need to laugh. That's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they say, here's the deal. You need to let us go. That's maybe the message paraphrase, but that's the idea. Now, remember, what was Moses' objection, his second objection, when, when God said, uh, I'm going to get you to do all these things? Well, who, who are you, Lord? Like, what's, what's, what's your name? Tell me who you are so I can go tell the the Hebrew people who you are. And when he hears who God is, well, he has other objections. But he doesn't object to the name of God, which is Yahweh he's given. Well, here, when Moses says this to Pharaoh, Pharaoh responds with, Who is Yahweh that I would obey his voice and let Israel go? God's hardened Pharaoh's heart already. And we're going to look at this because this theme pops up is sometimes the text says Pharaoh hardens his own heart, almost like in his own arrogance he gets angry, and sometimes God intervenes and hardens Pharaoh's heart. And one part that we haven't yet looked at, which we will, is what does this mean about free will and and all those kinds of things? We'll get there in in a few weeks, Um, but for now, when we think about this, is is Pharaoh simply going, like I said, I worship all kinds of gods. Who is this one God, Yahweh, and what's he going to do? One commentator said something really, really interesting. His argument was that the book of Exodus is not about Pharaoh versus Moses. And it's not even about God versus, sorry, Moses versus Pharaoh. And it's not about God versus Pharaoh either. It's about God versus everything else. Anyone who opposes him, whether man or the gods of Egypt or the gods of any other nation. is God's again trying to, zoom out macro show us that he and that he alone has all power and all authority and that everyone is under his control in the sense that he will accomplish his purposes of salvation no matter how much pharaoh stands against no matter how much he fights with his gods no matter what god is the lord and so he argues well who is this i'm not going to let you go and then we're going to skip a whole chunk here, but basically just say that in his hardened heart, he goes, okay, you think your God is, is going to rescue you. Well, now you're not even doing the, the work that you're supposed to do. And so now I'm going to make it even worse for you because what was the, what was the way that the first Pharaoh dealt with it? Well, let's just, let's just make them work harder and then this nation will shrink. But what did the text actually say? Do you remember? The more they were forced to work, the more the people grew miraculously. And so the same plan is now here again as if somehow this is some kind of a new plan. But that's Pharaoh's only way to deal with this is, okay, if you're going to come into me and go, man, we need to go and worship our Lord, who is your God? It doesn't even matter. You're you're, going to work harder. And so what you see here is the opposite is happening. When they go and they say, hey, let us go, it seems to be that the implication both from the people and from Moses and Aaron is that the Pharaoh would just go, oh, okay, go ahead. I've seen these miracles. You can go. So here's the thing. We probably all know this from our own experiences. How often does God work in the way that you expect him to work in your life? Not very often. Because God's purpose isn't just to remove me from circumstance. His purpose is to help me learn to trust him more so that no matter what I face in the world, no matter the opposition that comes at me, that I know that God is, has overcome that he wins. And the only way that I'm going to learn that is by going through what? Trial and hardship. They're going to make me fall to my knees, recognize how little power I have, and yet God hasn't just rescued me from that situation. He doesn't just make my life easy and comfortable. In fact, sometimes God makes our lives quite challenging and quite difficult. And so here you see that as Pharaoh's response is is negative, and and the people go, okay, well, this is crazy. Like, they even request to go see with Pharaoh, or or at least with his court. We're not really sure exactly how that situation would have looked. But simply that they went and go, man, the problem is with your people, because you're requesting or or requiring something of us that can't be done. Is we were doing this, but now you've said we're not even going to provide you with materials, so it's going to get worse, and you still have to accomplish the same purpose, and you know, if you, hopefully if you're a boss of people, you know that that's not a good employment strategy. It's not going to work. You have to provide. And Pharaoh is proving, well, here's the thing, right? Pharaoh is proving less and less that he is the provider of Israel, and God is proving more and more that he is the only provider of Israel or for Israel. And so it gets worse and worse. and then, And then you see verse 20 when they come out of there realizing, man, this is going to be, this is real bad news for us. They met Moses and Aaron, and and what's the response to them? The Lord, look on you and judge. You have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. God's at work. They don't see it. If you've read through it, you can see it. But if you've read through it, you also see that the same refrain happens over and over and over again, where God does something miraculous and rescues his people, and then the next hardship and obstacle they come against, they go, man, it would have been better if we were still slaves in Egypt. And God reveals himself and does a miracle. You know, whether that's they cross the Red Sea, parted, or whether that's food literally falls from heaven. There's so many examples, and then they continue to go, man, it would have been better for us to be back in Egypt. The reason for this, and we'll we'll say this over and over again, and I've said it already this morning, is that God works differently than we expect. So their assumption was, God, you're just going to rescue us immediately. But I think this is why God told Moses in the first place, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart first, and he's not going to let you go yet. God was prepping Moses to prep the people for what was going to happen. But he, Moses, look at his response. Lord, why have you done evil to these people? He's actually accusing God of evil. Why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and he has not delivered your people at all. Isn't that what God said? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And he's not going to let you go. Not yet because I still have purpose in the midst of this. And so, friends, for us, in your challenge, what we're called to is we're called to persevere in the midst of the hurt and the pain, not just try to fix the circumstance, but to learn to live within that circumstance, knowing that God is in control. And that might be confusing, and it probably will be, and it's hard to deal with. And, and, you know, something happens in your family or in your career or with people that you love or whatever it might be, and you go, how could this be God's plan? Is we're almost challenging God and God going, man, you only see this much. God's saying, I see everything. So I'm at work. So trust me in the midst of your hurt and in the midst of your pain. You hear me say this all the time, but Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Remember, what we think our good is and what God says our good is is often two very different things. Now, we might not be in slavery in the sense of of the people here, but if you think about it, is are we not captive to our culture's materialism way more than we would care to admit? We think we need this. We think we need that. We think, you know, I need. if I only had a few more dollars in the bank, or, or if I only had one more car, I would have, wouldn't would have these difficulties. Or, you can fill in the blank with whatever you want. And we can think, if, if that was the case, then I would be content. And what God's trying to say to us is, if you're not content without it, you're never going to be content with it. That's just the reality of it. So we say, God, I'm going to trust in you. And I'm going to trust that you are at work for my good and for the good of those around me. Is the same principle that God is trying to, or God is revealing his goodness and his power and his might through the people of Egypt. God is doing the same for you and the people that you interact with. God's trying to show others by your life that there is a God in heaven who is all powerful who loves you and has purpose for your life. And his purpose is far greater than your purpose. And sometimes we get to look back on our life over the years and we can see, man, I'm so glad God did that and not what I asked for. But often we're stuck in the moment of going, God, would you just please do what I ask for? This is why we have scripture. This is especially why we have Old Testament so that we can look back and see that God is always faithful. Maybe not in the way that we expect. Maybe not in the way that we want. But He is always faithful. He's always been faithful. So I can trust that right now in the situation that I'm in, the situation that you're in, and I don't know the situation that you're in, but I do know that all of us desperately need help to get through our current circumstances. God is still at work. He's working in his purposes while your circumstances might not just change when you pray about them, will you fall on your knees and worship knowing that the God who has created all things and who loves you has heard you and is at work within your life? That's the best news that we could ever have. Let's pray. God, thank you for difficult texts, for hard things that we read in the Bible that sometimes we don't know what to do with would we step back and kind of zoom out from the specifics of the situation and try and see what you are doing in in the narrative of the whole story of the Bible? God, you are sovereignly at work today just as much as you were back then. And you were at work in my life and in the life of each person here. Whether we see it and we understand it, or whether we're confused and we have no idea what's going on. That doesn't nullify the fact that you are working. So would we choose, even in the midst of the chaos, even in the midst of the confusion, would we choose to trust that you are faithful? And would we be obedient to whatever it is that you have called us to do, regardless of the circumstances around us? Knowing that you are at work in my life, and in the life of each one here for your good, ultimately that many would come to know you and that they would see that Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of hope, purpose, meaning, and that through his death and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sin and we know that we, are, we have conquered death that one day we'll be with you for all of eternity. God, thank you for all these things. Amen. am just going to get you to flip ahead real quick, and we're just going to read in Corinthians. We're going to spend some time celebrating communion. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, we would love for you to join uh, with us. We believe that communion is one of the ordinances that, that God, uh, that Jesus gave the church that we are to do and that we are to practice and that we are to remind ourselves. And so once a month, we come together and we focus on the cross of Jesus, that he died, that he rose again, that we have hope and purpose only in his blood. And so if you're visiting, but you were a believer in Jesus, then we encourage you to take part with us. But on the flip side, if you have not made Christ your savior, then, then this, this act of communion really doesn't have any purpose. And so we'd ask you, you don't believe in Jesus, if you haven't made him Lord of your life, then just let the items pass by when we when we hand them out. But I would ask that you consider who is Jesus. If you'd like to come and talk with us, there is nothing more that we would like to do than have that conversation with you. So let's flip to 1 Corinthians uh, 11. and I'm just going to get, uh, if I can get Lee and Ernie to just come up and and we'll pass these out in just a moment. But let me read 1 Corinthians, uh, starting in Chapter 11, this is verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Just remember in In the church in Corinth, there was (laughs) a lot of challenge, a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of obstacles, trying to follow this Jesus in the midst of a very anti-Jesus world. And so in some ways, we can relate to this, and, and we need to be reminded, just as they do, that we need to gather together, we need to remind ourselves, the only reason I have hope is because Jesus willingly went to the cross that his blood was sacrificed in place of me. For without that, I have no hope. So we come and we pass these out and the, the cracker is representative of, of Jesus' body and the cup is representative of Jesus' blood and we eat and we drink that, recognizing that that's the only reason that we have salvation is because Jesus has offered it freely to us. But as the text also says, we do this regularly reminding ourselves that no matter what happens in the world, no matter how painful it gets, no matter how anti-Christian the world may get and the more difficult it may be to be a follower of Jesus, is that one day Christ is coming again. And when he comes again, he will take us all to be with him for all of eternity. And so we look back and we look forward all at the same time because God has won. He has conquered death and sin. So let's pray and then we'll hand these out. God, thank you for your plan of salvation, which we're beginning to see in the book of Exodus, but that ultimately points all the way to when Jesus comes. And God, thank you that according to Scripture, that Jesus submitted to your will and that he went to the cross and gave up his life in place of us as the only atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. It was freely offered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But as Scripture says, as we were bought with a price, so, God, we want to honor you in that. So as we pass out these elements, as we eat and as we drink together as a church, as a global church, that we would put our focus and our emphasis on you and that we would live a life that honors you and that we would look ahead, not to our present circumstances, but that we would look ahead to one day when Jesus will come again and all wrongs will be righted. May we look forward with expectation and may we look back with humble gratitude and thanks. Cracker that we hold in our hand represents Christ's body, which is broken for us. Let's eat in remembrance of Him. We pass the cup now. Over these coming weeks, as we consider the blood shed on the doorpost. We will see all the way into your plan of salvation coming only through Jesus' perfect blood. So may we consider that it is only through you that we find salvation, only through your blood shed on the cross. don't even have words to express our deepest thanks and our humility. As the psalmist writes, who are man that you were mindful of us? Thank you that you love us so much that Jesus offered himself for us. cup represents Christ's blood spilled for us, strength and remembrance of him. God, as we go from this place to the various things that you have sovereignly placed in front of us today, would we trust in your power and in your strength that you were at work probably in ways that we don't understand. But help us to trust, to put all our faith, all our hope. Go with us today now. Amen. Just a reminder that there are snacks uh, for us available if you'd like to stay and visit. We would love to get to know you. If you're visiting, please feel free to stay and, and chat with people. Uh, If you have any questions, you can come find us, and we're here to serve. Have a wonderful week.